I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. In this week's show, we take a look at BP's third quarter results released yesterday, which showed the company's back in profit, despite the bill for the Gulf of Mexico still rising. Costs to the company are now close to $40 billion. The underlying profits came in around $5.5 billion, which is up around 18% year-on-year. After that, we'll have a look at Ali al-Naimi, Saudi's oil minister, and his claim on Monday that crude prices are in a comfortable zone of $70 to $90 a barrel, which actually sparked a $2 jump in oil prices on the day. Naimi has two factors in mind. The first is the weakness of the dollar. The second factor is that he probably assesses the world economy to be in a rather better state than it was a few months ago. We'll end this week's show with a report from Fiona Harvey from Singapore about the future of fossil fuels. Renewable energies are important, but renewable energies today and in the foreseeable future will not have the scale to replace a significant proportion of fossil fuels. You're listening to Energy Weekly with me, Sylvia Pfeiffer. Joining me in the studio today is David Blair, our energy correspondent, and joining us on the line is Jason Kenny. Head of Pan-European Oil and Gas Research at ING. Hi, Jason. Thanks very much for joining us. If we could go straight to those BP results that they announced yesterday for the third quarter. The, the, the one thing that obviously jumped out at everybody is that they were taking an additional charge of $7.7 billion. Now, I just wondered, was that higher than, than what you'd expected or at least factored into your estimates? I think it's very difficult to estimate what the costs are going to be. The charges, obviously... Uh, ran on a bit in September and through October. There were delays in finally getting the the rigs away from the well site. The underlying earnings were actually very positive. They were up 18% on the quarter, is that right? The underlying profits came in around 5.5 billion, which is up around 18% year on year. Good cash delivery from the upstream and the downstream. It shows that BP's not taken its eye off of the ball from the rest of its global operations, despite the obvious focus of the company on uh, remediating the U.S. Gulf of Mexico. What's been happening with production? Because they, they did announce yesterday that production in the Gulf of Mexico had obviously been lower because they haven't been um, drilling out there. I just, I just wondered which areas um, you know, they were sort of focusing on, on, on for that bit of growth. BP's got a, a global portfolio, of course, and uh, the global portfolio saw production down around 3.5% year on year in the third quarter. There was a lot of maintenance activity across its portfolio, but we will see uh, renewed growth from uh, key places like Angola, the UK North Sea, Azerbaijan uh, and some other areas. TNK BP in Russia, of course, continues to uh, fire up BP. And Cash management, I guess, is key because they, they've set up this $20 billion escrow fund, haven't they, to pay for the, um, for, for the claims resulting from the accident. Um, and, and obviously it also impacts a bit on, on the dividend. They, they announced that they were suspending the dividend for this year in, in, in June. I, I just wonder what you made of, of Dudley's comments yesterday that they would have another look at the dividend. Do you think they'll reinstate that at, at, at the level that it was at before the accident? Uh, undoubtedly, BP will provide a dividend in the future. Uh, I'm not sure it'll be reinstated at the same level uh, that we saw prior to this uh, incident. I think it will still be a competitive uh, payout from a company that will be slimmed down significantly. Don't forget they are divesting between 25 and $30 billion of assets in order to cover some of the cash costs of uh, the U.S. Gulf of Mexico 
um, in the next two or three years, the market will have seemed to have been overly cautious uh, for BP. Uh, I mean, they're factoring in around 60 billion of costs, despite the reiteration yesterday that costs are, are, are likely to be only 40 billion, and that's what BP is provisioned for. Uh, and I think, uh, possibly controversially, uh, in, in the long run, will maybe only amount to only half of that that, uh, that level. Uh, of course, BP is being very cautious itself. It, it is assuming all of the costs of its partners at the minute on a 100% basis in that provision. Uh, it may well uh, be able to claim that back from its partners in the U.S. Gulf of Mexico license in the Macondo well. Uh, and also, uh, at this stage, BP says that it's not uh, grossly negligent, and obviously that is yet to be proven against BP. If it's found that they are not grossly negligent, then I think they'll be able to apportion some of the uh, costs to do with the explosion and obviously the catastrophe on uh, other people as well as its actual licensed partners. Uh, and so maybe the $20 billion escrow account, which has been set up for the claims fund, will prove to be uh, you know, far too high uh, a figure. Uh, we may only see $10 billion worth of claims in, in time. I think it's going to be very difficult to challenge BP as being solely grossly negligent uh, and therefore having to carry all of this $40 billion provision that BP rightly has been uh, cautiously including in its numbers, but I think in, um, in the fullness of time we'll probably write back and, and it will be far too large a figure. You've got a buy recommendation on the stock. I just wonder what your, what your sort of price target is. Uh, well, we've got 7.12 pence, uh, which is significantly uh, higher than where the stock is today. Uh, we treat that as a three-year target price. It used to be a 12-month target price, but obviously we've got risks uh, out with the, the normal industry cycle, including the litigation process yet to come, the Marine Board investigation, the Presidential Commission investigation, uh, and we've got to see what happens with those things. There, there is going to be a time lag effect for, for achieving uh, what is quite a credible target price from the underlying operations and, and on a DCF basis, at least. Thank you very much. Let, let's move on to oil. Um, there were some interesting comments that came out on, on Monday um, by Ali al-Naimi, the, the Saudi oil minister, I think, David, um, which was sort of seemed to change Saudi's expectation of, of where they wanted to see global oil prices. I just wondered what, if you could tell us what, what he said. Yes, what he said was that he would be happy if oil traded in a range of between 70 and $90 a barrel. Um, that's significant because previously, uh, just the last month, in fact, before an OPEC meeting, he talked about a range of 70 to $80 a barrel. So in effect, he's raised the ceiling of what OPEC, by extension, would consider to be uh, a, a, an acceptable oil price. And, and why, the suddenly, why the sudden sort of shift in, in, in where they want to see oil prices? I mean, have things changed in the environment or why are they sort of moving up the price target? I think probably Naomi has two factors in mind. The first is the weakness of the dollar, which has clearly reduced the earnings of oil producers. And so they would rather like a higher price to compensate for that. Um, the second factor, I would imagine, is that he probably assesses the world economy to be in a rather better state than it was a few months ago. He's more optimistic for the prospects of global growth, and he thinks that a higher oil price wouldn't damage that. If that's his view... It's certainly consistent with OPEC's analysis, which is that oil prices up to $90 a barrel would not have any material effect on global economic growth. And, and there's, there's another OPEC meeting coming up um, towards the end of the year where people, again, um, didn't expect that much to happen. People sort of thought they would keep their production um, output um, level. I just wondered whether his comments um, indicate that the meeting might actually be more interesting than we'd previously expected it to be. The next meeting is in Ecuador on December the 14th. Um, 
As to whether it will lead to a, a, a clear policy change and perhaps a reduction in output, um, I would still be sceptical about that because oil is well within the acceptable range. Um, even if you take Naimi's ceiling of $90 a barrel, it's sort of $83 now, you know, perhaps nudging up. So I would imagine that it's within the range that's, that where they would not see drastic action as being necessary. And, and to just, just finally, I just wonder, how, how disciplined has, has OPEC been lately in terms of um, sticking to its production quotas? Because obviously there, there's always this big debate about, you know, they have these production quotas, but are they producing more? Are they producing less? And they're actually saying that they are. They've become gradually less disciplined in the last couple of years. Um, when they agreed a big output cut back in December 2008, when they agreed to reduce output by 4.2 million barrels a day, um, compliance then was in the range of about 90%. Since then, the compliance figure has fallen substantially. Uh, OPEC's official figure for compliance is 61%, but independent analysts think that's too optimistic. They put compliance more like 53-55%. And there are certain member states, Venezuela, Nigeria and Angola in particular, whose production policies appear to bear almost no relationship to OPEC quotas, at least at the moment. Um, so one option that OPEC would have is that they could seek to boost the oil price, not by reducing the their production quotas, but simply by raising compliance with the existing constraints. So what they could try and do is try and push their compliance level up by, say, 10%, which wouldn't lead to a, a formal shift in production quotas at all, uh, but would have a substantial impact on on, uh, on oil prices. Right. And then, then just, just finally, I just wondered, um, does it do higher oil prices mean um, higher prices for motorists? At the retail level, probably they would have no immediate impact uh, at all. Um, the retail prices depend on a whole range of factors, notably the willingness of companies to absorb higher costs and whether they're prepared to squeeze their profit margins or pass them on. So at the moment, I wouldn't imagine they'd have any great, uh, they'd make any great difference. Um, but if oil prices were to creep up towards $100 a barrel again, uh, then that would have a profound impact. Thanks very much. Thank you. And to our final topic for today, um, over to Singapore, uh, where Fiona's been interviewing Lawrence Wong, Chief Executive of the Energy Market Authority there um, for, for its International Energy Week. And she started off by asking him about the future of fossil fuels. Fossil fuels will remain an important part of the world's energy mix in the years to come, in fact, for decades. Renewable energies are important, and more R&D needs to go into renewable energies, which is happening but renewable energies today and in the foreseeable future will not have the scale to replace a significant proportion of fossil fuels, which means that while renewable energies will be part of the world's energy mix, they are not going to be a significant share, and the dominant share will still be fossil fuels. And the implication for that, if we are serious about climate change, is that we have to also devote our energies and R&D investments, not just in the area of renewable energies, but also into ways to decarbonize fossil fuels in areas like carbon capture and sequestration, making fossil fuels um, or uh, more efficient use of fossil fuels. These are just as important in order to um, have an energy mix that is sustainable and consistent with our efforts to tackle global warming.
And can you just uh, give us a bit of a flavour of um, some of the other things that we've been hearing today uh, at the exhibition here? We have had a very full day of speeches, conferences, uh, different panel sessions. The overarching theme is about powering towards a smart energy economy. And there are different ideas, different facets of what it means to be a smart energy economy. On the supply side, the, the question is about the right fuel mix, the right energy mix, and I talked about that briefly just now. Fossil fuels being part of it, and we need to find ways to decarbonize or to reduce the carbon emissions from fossil fuels as well as renewable energy. Um, but we also talked about other ways to pursue smart energy economies, um, including more efficient usage of electricity, more intelligent systems with smart grids, with electric vehicles, and also changing of mindsets and um, habits so that consumers are able to use energy more efficiently. So there, there are a whole range of ideas from the, on the supply side, on the demand side, um, for producers as well as consumers. And I think through the gathering of policymakers, of researchers, of industry players in the Singapore Energy Summit, we have been able to tease out and get quite a good range of ideas on ideas, solutions and strategies in, for countries and for governments and for companies to pursue um, smart energy solutions. And that's all we have time for today. All that's left is for me to thank David in the studio, Fiona in Singapore and our guest on the telephone, Jason Kenny. Energy Weekly was produced by LJ Filatrani. I'm Sylvia Pfeiffer. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.